Hello, and welcome to the Queen Trail podcast. Queen Trail, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. I am Syl Ammon, and I invite you to join me in exploring and savoring life's riches and the beauty that surrounds us. In the company of friends, we can laugh, discover, appreciate, and support each other. So I hope that you will join me where I will talk about everything that makes up the rich and diverse fabric of a delightful life. Let's cultivate vibrant conversation together. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we talked. Um, I had a really good week. It was it was a little weird at the beginning. There wasn't a lot going on. And I just kind of felt like I was having one of those transitional introspective weeks, you know, where you just kind of take some inventory of what's going on in your life, and just try to, you know, alter your course or plan the next step type of thing. I don't think I even did any baking last week. So it was it was a pretty slow week. But then Friday rolled around. And I was able to get some things done for the podcast. I also got to meet some of my friends for lunch, we had planned this and my friend Chris and Adele came out from Minnesota, where it is dark and snowy and freezing right now. And I'm really lucky that when they come out, they set aside a day for me. And we just have the most wonderful time and just catch up. And they truly are just some of the most lovely people in the world. We met at Claire's in Long Beach, which is part of the Long Beach Museum of Art. And it's just a gorgeous outdoor patio dining experience right on the bluffs. Just beautiful. You know, the sea was casting diamonds and it was just gorgeous. And their menu is authentic, eclectic California fare. I had such a hard time trying to figure out what I wanted to eat because in addition to their regular menu, they have a rotating specials menu. So they have the things that I usually go for, (laughs) ceviche, they have an avocado toast, they have salmon, eggs benedict, Oh my gosh, that is one of my very favorite things to eat, especially if they make the poached eggs well. I want to be able to cut into my eggs and have, you know, a waterfall of yolk coming down over my food. I know that there's people who just don't like that, but that is heaven to me. I just, I love that. And I think part of it, I'm going to go on one of my side tangents and then I'll get back to this menu. Part of it is when I was growing up as a kid, my grandma would make me soft boiled eggs. And she made a huge production out of it. She would put them in little egg cups. And just around the very top of the egg, it was always the pointy end up, she would start tapping and it was always tap, 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 crunch, 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 tap, 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 crunch, crunch, crunch. And then she would pull that little cap off and then clean off all of those little shards of egg shell that might be around there. She always made the most beautiful eggs when I make them. They're, they definitely don't equate to my memory. I, I, you know, kid memories are just filled with glitter and wonder and just kind of magical, right? So in my memory, these eggs were always perfect. She would cut around the egg white inside was that rich golden yolk. And she served it with tortillas because my background is Costa Rican. I'm a first generation American, but my family came from Costa Rica and they were always corn. There was never a flour tortilla in the house. And so I, you know, grew up with an affinity for a good soft boiled egg. And I especially love a good poached egg. Um, which are not that easy to make. So I'm always impressed when restaurants serve them up. I actually went to a restaurant one day, get this, they served Eggs Benedict without hollandaise sauce. (laughs) 
you have to have hollandaise sauce and it has to be fresh made in the kitchen. Anyway, Claire's definitely hit the mark on that one because that is what I ordered. And then, oh yeah, their drinks menu has some very inspired, breezy, flowery, beautiful beverages on there. I don't remember exactly what the drink was that I had, but it had blood orange and a passion fruit syrup that was house-made and brandy-infused maraschino cherries, which are nothing like the cherries you find on the ice cream aisle. They were just amazing. Um, Oh, and then they had cornmeal blueberry cake. I had to have that. Anything that's cornmeal, I'm all over it. So we had a wonderful lunch, and then we went for a stroll along the path there, just chatting and having a great time and ending our visit much too soon. I could have spent the rest of the afternoon with them, but it's always just such a pleasure to spend whatever amount of time I can with them. Really great friends. And what a cool location. So the Long Beach Museum of Art is housed in Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's former home. It was built sometime in the early 1900s. Get this. Her father invested his money in a bunch of different ventures, including the New York Condensed Milk Company. Yes, the same one that later became Borden Milk. Whenever I see sweetened condensed milk, all I do is think about my grandmother. This is funny. This podcast must be orchestrated somehow through the spirit of my grandmother today because I've already talked about her making those eggs when I was growing up. And I think um, she's the reason really why I love to cook. She was such an amazing cook. And Borden sweetened condensed milk was in our house all of the time. And she made the most amazing pastries. She would sit there and watch Julia Child's way back in the day and then replicate whatever Julia Childs was making. And she had this amazing memory. You would ask her, oh, how do you make this? And she would say, okay, you need two pounds of flour and one pound of butter and, you know, a pound uh, and a half of sugar. And she would just say these things off the top of her head, a tablespoon of baking powder and half a tablespoon of baking soda, because as you can tell by these enormous numbers, she never made meals for just one or two people. Being a Hispanic family, we had about seven people in the house regularly and more for dinner. Then my uncle lived across the street with his wife, my Aunt Mayi, And they would come over for dinner. So now you had nine people. And then we had a bunch of neighbors that we were really great friends with. And sometimes they would come over or, you know, my uncle would bring friends from school over. He was very young at the time going to high school. Um, I had two uncles. So my uncle Rupert was the young one. And then my uncle Ricardo, who is the eldest lived across the street with his wife, Mayi. And then I had a third uncle who stayed in Costa Rica, so we didn't see him often. So, you know, sometimes we'd have 12 people at the dinner table. It was a very lively family. I remember watching The Aviator, the story of Howard Hughes with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Blanchett. And there's that scene where she takes him to her house and everybody's talking over each other and he's just going, oh my God, how can you handle this? And she said, you know, this is, this is where I learned how to fight, how to find my voice. And it was, it was kind of like that. Everybody was talking to each other, very jovial, very natural, very normal for us. There were always piles of food on the table. My grandma would make enough food for everybody. And this was a daily thing. I mean, you'd wake up in the morning and she already had rice and beans, a staple at our house going on the stove. And then, you know, she'd spend the rest of the day 
deciding what else she was going to add. And it was always magnificent and just a spread. But she always had dessert as well. And it often involved sweetened condensed milk. I could eat that stuff straight out of the can. I don't know who came up with this recipe, but we would put it on everything. I mean, it was like an ice cream topping, you know, drizzle it over strawberries and fruit. But one of her favorite things to do was to take that whole can. Do not do this. This is so dangerous. You take the whole entire can and you throw it in boiling water for I don't know how long. Actually, I did do it one time and I was so stressed out that that can was going to blow up. Complete chaotic disaster scenario in my head that I never did it again. And I actually called the, um, I don't think it's Borden anymore. I think it's now like Carnation or something. But whoever it is that makes the sweetened condensed milk, the big commercial one, because I know that there's a lot of other brands out there. I told them I really need a recipe, please, because I know that there's a way to turn this into dulce de leche, which is thickened um, paste. It turns into this thickened paste. That's so sugary and just heavenly. And I called them up and I said, I am so stressed out using my grandmother's recipe because science. (laughs) And I, if you have a recipe where I could do this without having to worry about this can blowing up in my kitchen and, you know, shooting shrapnel through walls and killing us all, decapitating people. I mean, it was it was a very bad scenario going on in my head. Could you please give me that recipe? And basically what you do is you take that can of sweetened condensed milk and you put that in an oven-proof glass dish and then you just bake it. You just bake it in the oven and I think it's like 30 minutes or something at whatever the temperature is. I don't have the recipe in front of me and it pretty much eliminates the worry. So that was a good thing. I've never tried baking it in the oven. That was that was it. I think I was so traumatized from the scenario going on in my mind and the duration of boiling this can that I just have never tried to turn it into dulce de leche. I've never even bought the stuff at the store. I should go back and try it sometime and remake one of my grandmother's recipes. But she would make jelly rolls. And instead of putting jelly in there, she would put the dulce de leche over the top and then roll up the cake and then roll that in sugar and just just all of this inspired stuff that she made with it. So anyway, I am reminded of that all the time. And I can't believe that the heiress of this sweetened condensed milk that holds so many treasured memories for me, her home is now the Long Beach Museum of Arts home. And um, I think it costs like maybe $12 or something like that to go in there. I haven't been in there in quite a while, but it is open right now. And I highly recommend it because it's a beautiful place. And, you know, then just make sure that you stop at Claire's afterwards and get yourself something good because everything on their menu is amazing. At least, you know, for my taste buds, very Californian, very uh, yummy food. Okay, so I thought today I'd go and answer a couple of questions that have come through. Um, You know, these are going to be long answers because I talk so much. But let's see, somebody asked me, how do you find time to podcast? And that's a great question. Basically, I don't watch TV. I have no social media usage. I gave up my life. (laughs) Um, Actually, I do limit my television viewing. If I catch myself, you know, I don't want to call it bored, boredom, because I am rarely bored. But if I'm in a lull, where I kind of start thinking, I wonder what's on TV. I normally do catch myself doing that. And then I start thinking, well, what else can you do? If I 
do get to the point where I sit down and start going through the various streaming services that we have, a lot of times I don't find anything on there that's worthwhile. And I just start basically doom scrolling, you know, it's the same thing that you do on social media, which is why I limit my time on there as well. It's just really easy when you've got a lot going on. It's just easy to fall into that kind of numb, comfortably numb going back to that (laughs) song that Mike and I were talking about. But your mind goes into that place. And it's not challenging itself. It's It just is. It just is. And it's allowing this mindless stuff to go in front of it. It's almost hypnotic, right? And so when I catch myself doing that, I feel like I've wasted, even if it's just one minute, I have wasted one minute of these finite number of minutes and hours that I have been given. You know, we're all allotted only so much time. And it's like the food wasting philosophy that I have. I feel like I need to try my hardest to really challenge myself to fill those moments in with as much meaning and purpose as I possibly can. Those are such important words to me. They mean a lot. And I am always striving to find that purpose and that meaning from what I do, who I talk to, who I allow into my life, my actions, my activities, all of that sort of thing. So, you know, it's not that I don't waste time because I sure do that. And a lot of times that doom scrolling, that mindless scrolling through either social media or through those streaming channels or whatever it is that you do, a lot of times that's just a form of procrastination. And it's a form of overwhelm. And so I think that's why it's so easy to fall into that. And so I do limit my time doing that. In fact, two years ago, I think it was, I told myself, I caught myself doom scrolling a lot on social media. I challenged myself to spend an equivalent amount of time learning something new. And for Christmas that year, I had gotten Sophia ukulele because she wanted one. And I thought, I'm going to get one too. And we can learn together. That might be kind of fun. So I picked up the ukulele. Every time I thought, let me see if there's something new on Facebook. And there's been a lot of research and information out there about how social media is designed to addict you. It's designed to hit those pleasure centers in your mind, and also those expectation centers in your mind, right? So you start scrolling, and you don't find anything new, and eventually you get bored. Even with that infinite scroll, there is no end. So those expectation centers, those dopamine centers, once you set the phone down, start asking you to pick it up again because something new might be on there, something that might fill that need of excitement, that need of knowledge that we all have. And almost invariably, there's nothing new on there. So you get disappointed, you go back into another session of doom scrolling, you set the phone down, and Five minutes later, you're back on it. And so I told myself, if you spend an equal amount of time dedicated to learning something new, I bet you something amazing will happen. So I picked up that ukulele and I learned how to play the Israel K version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, that really beautiful ukulele version. Um, Wow. I actually learned how to play an instrument and I'm not, (laughs) I am not by any stretch musical. I mean, I think I've mentioned before I can clap and I can whistle a little bit and that's about it. It's amazing that I can whistle because I sure cannot sing, but I, I tend to get the notes okay, which is amazing. I derived so much satisfaction, so much of a sense of confidence and just astounded my own self that I was able to do something that I hadn't been able to do before that I did that. 
by not scrolling, by not sitting in front of the TV, by not spending any of these finite number of minutes that I have been gifted in my life on something so transitory as something that I wasn't even deriving any satisfaction out of, you know. So um, yeah, those are the things that I don't do. And you know, it's not like I don't watch TV. And again, it's not like I don't waste time. There are times where I'm so overwhelmed that all I think about is I just want to lay in bed and pet Echo and just pretty much do nothing. And that's okay. I mean, you know, one of the things, like I said, um, on the last episode, Thich Khan just passed away. And one of the things that he talked about all the time is that we've forgotten how to just be. We've forgotten how to exist in silence. And existing in silence is okay. It's just when you're existing in mindless stimulation, that it becomes a problem. So there's a difference between those two. Anyway, I don't want to get super philosophical about it. But that is how I find time to podcast. And then on the flip side, I make time to podcast as well, because it's what matters, you know, it's what's making a difference in my life, it makes me feel alive. And it makes me feel like I'm somehow in a small way contributing back. Um, Mostly, it's because I get to talk to really interesting people who conveniently happen to be my friends and family. And it's one of the things that I love. I love learning about people. I love seeing the world through a new perspective. I love learning something new about my friends and my family and in turn learning new things about myself. So in addition to freeing up time, I also make time intentionally so that I can learn and have a great time. And it's just a great creative outlet for me. You know, like I said, I used to put on storytelling events. I am a writer. I've done a lot in filmmaking. And it's just something that comes naturally to me that just gives me great joy. Okay, so the next question that I have is, you said that you love the outdoors. Do you like to camp? And if so, do you cook there? like you do at home. Um, Yes, I do love the outdoors. I love to hike. I love to kayak. I love to stand up paddleboard. I love swimming. I mean, anything that's outdoors. I love it. I hate camping. I really do. I will walk. And I've done this before. I will I will hike 20 miles. But At the end of the day, I want a comfortable bed to sleep in. And I want a shower, I want a warm shower. And I'm emphasizing warm, because (laughs) there was one time I have this group of girlfriends, and we go on these girls weekends, and they're not girls weekends as in shopping and spa and you know, like totally spoiling ourselves with mimosas and stuff. Although there's usually a day where we have, you know, kind of do your own thing for a certain amount of time, because we've got something either early in the morning or something in later on in the day, and there's a a gap there. And sometimes there does end up being a spa day or, you know, a spa couple of hours. But not on this trip that I recall, we were in Big Bear, and we went kayaking across Big Bear Lake, the long way. And it was very cloudy. You could see the snow runs over on the other side. In fact, if I remember right, that was a crazy weekend. My car was in the shop. I was going to take another car that we had at the time, but there was something wrong with the radiator on it. So I went to borrow my dad's car, 
which is like a 1980 Ford Tempo, total factory, never had any upgrades, still has the roll-up windows. And I mean, you couldn't shift out of first gear. It was kind of like you had to hit the pedals and, and yeah, and it was it was a, a stick shift. You had to hit the pedals right and quickly get it into second gear or you were going to be stuck at the stoplight. And to drive from where I live to Big Bear and then up that rim of the world hill or that mountain, forget it. Um, I think I got about four blocks from his house and I turned around and went back to my parents' house and said, forget it. I will take the car that has the issue with the radiator and stop where I need to. I know that if there's any guys listening, you're probably cringing, but I made it up there and the radiator was fine. I think because it was very cold. And as I'm going up the rim of the world highway, I start seeing these ribbons of like smoke going across my windshield. And I was thinking, what the heck is that? And it starts to rain, like really poor. And then the rain turned into the thickest fog. And it was so scary because then the sun dropped and I was in fog and dark. And the car that I had taken was also a stick shift. I was trying to keep up with the car in front of me because at least I could see the taillights. But then at some point it was like he put it in, you know, like nitro charge, like, uh, I don't know, and just took off and disappeared. And I was by myself on this road and it was petrifying. (laughs) The funny thing was I kept trying to open my eyes bigger and bigger and bigger as if somehow that was going to help me see through this fog because it was impenetrable. I couldn't see past the windshield wipers, but I could see down on the road and I could see the yellow line. And I thought to myself, I need to stay against this yellow line because if I stray off to the right, I'm literally going to fall off this mountain and it will not be a good thing. So I did that, but then I couldn't see any of the street signs. The girls started calling me because they were really worried because it was that foggy. It was pretty treacherous. I took a really long time to get to them and they were preparing to come out and look for me. And I'm really glad that they didn't. And I walked through the front door and there was a lemon drop, one of those lemon drop martinis just shoved into my hand like, here, I think you need this. And I certainly did. Um, But the next day, we decided to do that kayak across Big Bear Lake the long way. And the skies were gray and it was really crisp and it was threatening rain the entire time. Mostly it did not rain. Um, Really, it didn't start to come down until we were almost all the way back. But it was so beautiful. There were deer coming up to the edge. Something about, you know, when the weather gets like that, maybe because there's less people around, the animals come out and there was a doe and her baby fawn. And it was like a Doobie Brothers song, black water, catfish are jumping. I don't know if they were catfish. I mean, they were probably trout, but they just kept jumping out of the out of the water and up in the air. And it was really a beautiful sight and ducks everywhere and you know, birds flying over us. Just gorgeous. We got to the other side of the lake. I think there were six of us. We get to the other side of the lake to have lunch. And where we shored up was right among all of this duckweed. And I (laughs) put my feet out to be able to, you know, drag our kayak up onto shore. And it was just this bubbling, squishy, disgusting, fermenting. Oh, so gross. And I just had to tell myself somewhere somebody considers this a spa treatment. Um, So we got through that and we had a wonderful lunch. We really had a good time get back in the kayaks, come all the way back. And then that's when it started raining. And we all thought we were going to be super sore the next day because that was a long way to paddle. When we got back to the cabins, I went to go take a shower and some special maneuvering had to be done to get the water heater to go. So it was a freezing cold shower. 
not real thrilled about that, but at least I got my shower, I got cleaned up, and I had a nice, soft, warm bed for the night. And the next morning, my arms were fine. I think all of us were fine. So that was a really fun weekend. And um, speaking of the kayaking and the camping, a few years ago, we went up to the San Juans, up uh, to Anacortes, Washington, and we did a kayaking weekend adventure. There were an odd number of us. I think there were five of us plus the guide, which would be even numbered, but the guide was like, this is my own personal kayak, and so one of you guys has to be a singleton. And I raised my hand that I would be the single person because I think that we had just gone on another kayaking adventure where we were renting the kayaks not very long before that. And I ended up with a, we call her like agro girl. She was in the back. And if you've ever gone kayaking in a tandem kayak, the person in the back is the one that steers. And she kept trying to steer me. I would, you know, try to paddle over to my girlfriends and she would like paddle, paddle, paddle and turn me away from them. And I thought she's going to paddle me out into the middle of the ocean. She was kind of scary. And I think that experience was stuck in my head a little bit. So I said I would be in the single kayak and I knew it was going to be a hard trip. I knew it was going to be difficult and I had kind of practiced for it. I'd done a little bit of stand-up paddle boarding and then I did a bunch of exercises with weights and, you know, just trying to build up upper body strength and stamina. I was running a lot at the time and it ended up being six and a half hours of paddling through the ocean on a gorgeous day. There were cormorants, there were um, jellyfish. Oh my gosh, there was this moon jelly bloom. And moon jellies sting, but their sting is so mild that you really, that, that you can't feel it. I mean, I think you would literally have to be covered in them for you to even feel it a little bit. So I wasn't super concerned about those, but there were lion's mane jellies and there were like these egg yolk jellies. And I don't remember what the other ones were. And those petrified me because those would definitely sting you. Um, and I thought, well, you know, if there's this many moon jellies, there's gotta be a bazillion of these other jelly uh, jellyfish in there. I almost said jelly beans. Um, I love jelly beans. I just thought there's probably a bazillion other jellyfish in there. And the whole purpose for this was we were following the salmon run on the lookout for orcas, which is a little terrifying, right? When you think about you're in a kayak and you're hoping to see an orca come swimming by uh, that could eat you. And uh, they're called killer whales for a reason. But we ended up seeing none of that and a lot, a lot, a lot of paddling. And there were some big boats. We crossed a couple of very busy waterways with ferries and whatnot. And that was, a, you know, and then the, the people that were going too fast through there on their motorboats and their yachts and maybe not seeing us because kayaks are very small compared to a lot of these water vessels. And so that was a little bit scary, a little stressful, we got through that and I think we were at about five and a half hours and I was flagging. I mean, my arms were killing me and I was really struggling. And the next thing I know is our guide comes over and he tries to put the rope on the front of my kayak. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm just going to help you. I'm like, no, you're not. And he goes, well, you know, you, you seem like you're a little bit tired. I'm like, no, I'm not. No, you are not going to put, you are not going to tow me. And he's going, you know, like, no, 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 no. Believe me, you're still going to have to paddle. I'm not, I'm like, totally not going to tow you, but you're still going to have to paddle. But this will be, this will be a little bit of a help. And I'm like arguing with this guy out in the middle of the ocean and just totally offended that he was going to come and help me. And really that came from a place of being very frustrated with myself for not having that strength and that stamina 
to make it for those six and a half hours without any help. I mean, my intention had been to go, you know, and get there on my own. And I'm very competitive. And sometimes I need to analyze why that is. But it is a truth about me. And it's something that um, and, you know, I think I'm less so the older that I get, simply because I'm understanding it more. And I realize that it's okay to let other people win. And that just because they won, right, I'm putting parentheses around one, doesn't mean that I lost. You know, a lot of times, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And so, so, you know, I've gotten better at that, but it it does come up when I least expect it. And then a lot of times I'm very, very proud of myself because it doesn't come up at all. And I'm like, wow, I conquered a little bit of that issue. So anyway, it came up there. And after going back and forth, me arguing, him haggling and trying to get me to see his way, he said, look, everybody else is in a tandem except for you. It's just going to be to help you. It's going to be like putting a little bit of wind on your back and helping you cruise into the harbor. We were going to Reed Harbor, from San Juan Beach to Reed Harbor. And he said, it's just going to be a little bit of a push because you're still going to have to paddle. You're still going to be doing this on your own. It's just that it's going to be a little bit of help. So I finally relented. And he said, I promise I will unhook you when we get to the mouth of the harbor. And we paddled together. And, you know, I thought I was paddling really well. I I know all about hand placement. And I know you're supposed to sit up straight. You're not supposed to bend your arms. You're actually paddling with your core rather than your arms. But he kept telling me I was not paddling properly, which also irritated me. But, you know, again, that competitive part of me and being out on the water kayaking for five and a half hours has a way of making you a little bit sensitive, I guess. (laughs) I guess would be the right word. But we finally got into Reed Harbor. He unhooked me. Oh my God. It was so beautiful, you guys. There were bald eagles catching salmon. So the salmon were there. There were so many of them. I mean, there were flocks like you see seagulls at the beach. It was incredible. And the sun rays were slanted and just cascading through these beautiful pines at the top of the the cliffs. And we paddled into this gorgeousness. And then... We had to set up tents after six and a half hours of kicking our own asses. We had to set up tents. And not only that, we got in there during low tide. So after we got our kayaks up, we ended up having to carry them way up high because the watermark was very, very high. (laughs) And so we're like dragging kayaks up there. I mean, we really, really were getting the work out of our lives. And the cool thing was, though, that our guide made all the meals. So he made this dinner for us. He started this fire. He had, I've tried to remake his fire starter since then. And what he told us, if I remember right, is that he just used some dryer lint and Vaseline, you know, something like that. And you just mix those together really well. And it's the the best kindling. And he would blow through, he would curl up his hand and like a fist, but leave it hollow in the middle. And he would blow on the fire. And it would create this huge flame. I mean, it was really neat. And I got a great picture of him. So maybe I'll post that on the website as well. But I've never been able to do that. I I have an issue with starting fire from scratch. I'm sure most people do. But I think I have a very unique issue with starting fires from scratch that goes beyond uh, the normalcy of, of the struggle. So um, so that happened. And then he made us breakfast in the morning. And we hiked around there. And I got my own tent. And I had it in the most beautiful spot. I had a direct view of the harbor from the front door of the tent. 
And there was a kingfisher that liked to sit on the end of a branch that was in direct view of the front door of my tent. And I could just watch him fishing. It was the coolest thing. But then when I was sleeping at night, it was kind of like a pup tent. And so it was, you know, it was very small. It was for a single person. Well, where I put it, and you know, by the time I crawled in here, you got to imagine I was beat. I mean, there was literally nothing else that I could do. I was just like, everything hurts. And I was so exhausted. And I go to lay down and there's a freaking rock underneath my tent. And this is one of the reasons why I hate camping. It's not just one, the only one, but this is this is a big one. And so I tried to shift one way and then I tried to shift another way, but it was running vertically across the vertical line of my tent right in the middle. And I could not get away from it. And the damn thing was right up my crack all night long for two nights in a row. So it just was not the most pleasant thing. And finally, that last day, we go to leave. And I just felt this cold wind coming on. And I thought this is going to be a little bit tougher going. There were even more eagles, if you can even imagine that. And we get out into the open sea and we just got blasted by these winds. And these waves were just smashing against the side of our kayaks. And our guide was like, don't worry, we're ahead of the storm, we can make it. And we're out there paddling and we must have been about an hour and a half. So now we're out in deep sea. And we got hit by the storm of our lives. Um, I don't remember being afraid at that time. Because what happens is you're paddling for your life. You do not have time to examine the situation and be afraid. I was paddling and paddling and there were waves that were sloshing over the top of our kayaks. They were going over the top of our heads. They were so huge. They were hitting us from all directions. And later on, I found out that when there's a storm, or I'm assuming even when there's not, there's so many different currents going on. You've got your surface currents, then you have rip currents, then you have currents beneath that. And you have microcurrents that, and so I don't know, it was like a washing machine out there. And I'm paddling and paddling and I'm watching one set of my girlfriends rise up on the peak of a wave. So they're in a tandem kayak way up on the peak of this wave. And my other set of girlfriends in their tandem kayaks are in the well of that wave. And it looked like the ones on the peak were going to land on top of the ones that were in the trough. Um, That was concerning. It was like these parallel thoughts that were going in my mind, like, keep paddling, but that looks bad, you know, kind of thing. And I hope they don't die. And I just got to keep paddling. I mean, that was we were in that terrible washing machine of a storm for about an hour And about 45 minutes in, I started to get stomach cramps, not intestinal stomach cramps, but muscular stomach cramps. My core had just had it. My obliques, my intercostals were just seizing up. And I think that that's when I started to feel concern. I didn't feel fear, but I did feel some concern, like, I don't know how I'm going to paddle out of here, you know, like it's seizing up and it was so painful. Somehow we got out of the storm and we ended up on some island. I don't even know what the name of the island was. Just, you know, there's a bunch of little islands out there. And we just laid on the beach like castaways, just laid there. And our guide's like, I'm going to make you lunch. And we're all like... Uh, you know, like, we couldn't, we were just trying to process the fact that we were still alive. (laughs) So we're on this little island for a while. And eventually, we have to leave this island, because it must have been like low tide on that island, too, even though the, you know, the seas were tossing about. And when we get back out in our kayaks, we were 
beat. It was it was a struggle. It was a real challenge to get back in the kayaks. And if if there wasn't the fact that if we didn't get into the kayaks, we were going to be spending a freezing and probably wet night on some island without any real shelter. I don't know that we would have done it. But also, he had told us, oh, we're about an hour away. And so we thought, okay, you know, we mustered up everything that we had, we, you know, pulled ourselves up by our, you know, our water shoes, and got into the kayaks and started paddling away. And the next thing we hear from our guide is that his GPS was off for whatever reason. Uh, you know, you're out in the middle of the ocean and your signal is not that great. I, I don't know what he was using. I mean, I'm guessing that there was some EPIRB, some some sort of, you know, beacon that was being sent to him um, that other ships would use. I don't know, but... We were two and a half hours away from the harbor. We had been totally tossed and blown off course. And then the wind doubled down on us. I mean, it just started blowing like ice. Um, and by that time, the funny thing is that we were paddling and my arms were so numb, it didn't matter. It was like if I had to kayak to China, I probably could have done it. I had lost any sense of discomfort. I was just weary. And I realized this is just what I have to do. So we just paddled. And so eight hours later, now remember, it took us six and a half hours to go from San Juan Beach to Reed Harbor. It took us over eight hours to get back. We finally pulled into San Juan Harbor. And what normally happens is that there is a taxi there waiting to take you. You just grab your bags and get on this taxi and it takes you over to the ferry. You tip your guide and you're gone. You're done. Your trip is over. Well, we ended up getting there so late that our taxi had left and there was no taxi to the ferry. So we had to unload all of these kayaks, which had very deep hulls. And they had all of the cooking equipment, all of our tents, all of our bags, everything. Then once we got all of that into the back of his truck, we had to go back and carry these kayaks up and over this very rocky beach and get them up on top of these racks that were way up above our heads. Somehow we did it and we all jammed in there into the guide's truck, still wet, and he took off like about out of hell. I mean, he was taking turns on two wheels because we barely had enough time to get to that ferry. And we're hanging on for dear life, but we're yelling at him to go faster because we barely skidded onto that ferry by the skin of our teeth. We would have had to stay there and wait for the next ferry in the morning. We got off of that ferry into full dark and full wind. I mean, it was so cold. My arms were flapping like a chicken. I It was uncontrollable. I could not stop it. And I couldn't wait until I got into warm clothes. So that was a rather adventurous adventure. <laughs> I mean, that's, it was probably one of my favorite ones, even though I have no desire to repeat that again. But it was like, we kicked ass. The sea challenged us and we responded back appropriately, you know? I mean, it was it was really cool to feel that kind of, to acquaint yourself with that kind of power within you, with that kind of determination and that will to survive and that strength to get you through. So, um, so that was pretty cool. And that is my camping story. Um, oh, and there was a question when you camp, do you cook? Do you cook there like you do at home? So I do like to eat out on hikes along the trail, even though it's not cooking. What I generally do is I will pack salads, I'll pack caprese sandwiches, apple slices with peanut butter and sunflower seeds. Um, 
I try to make oh some of the salads that I pack, you know, I'll pack like a grain uh, salad with greens and, you know, just make it like as good as you possibly can. So I do like to make fancy snacks when I go on trail hikes. Um, I haven't camped enough. I try to avoid it, but I would imagine that I would probably make something awesome. You know, like when you go on YouTube, you see these videos, like there's some guy who's like some wilderness fancy chef out in the forest. And he, you know, he uses like tree trunks as his cutting board. And he makes these beautiful videos. He's got like these giant cast iron pans and just everything looks like you want to be there. And it looks so lush and you can literally smell the pine trees through your screen. That would probably be me. I would probably do something like that. I would probably figure out how to cook something in a fire pit, like, you know, um, chicken or something, you know, I would probably season it and put it in some aluminum foil and put it underneath some coals for a few hours type of things. So um, I would like to try stuff like that. Um, you might be hearing my crazy neighbors. And now I hear sirens. Yeah, it's not anywhere near the 4th of July. And we're quite a ways away from New Year's. So I don't know what that was for. But I guess there's always time for celebration, right? So yeah, you know, I see these, I get very inspired by things like that. And I would probably try to replicate something like that as close as I could, you know, I would make sure that I had the ingredients that I needed to fresh lemon zest. I mean, you know, that's one of the things that just makes everything taste good. So a lot of times, if I know I'm not going to be using the zest in a recipe, I go ahead and zest the lemon anyway, and it goes in the freezer and it's just fine the next time that you use it. So I probably do something like that. But I try to avoid camping, and so I don't have an actual story where I cooked like I do at home. But if the opportunity presented itself, I would probably make something super cool because, you know, that's, like I said, that's my meditative practice. So I think that's it. Thank you so much for these questions. I hope I answered them to your satisfaction. I love your questions and your suggestions and I just love you guys. So thanks for listening. Make sure to keep the questions and the suggestions coming and also be sure to follow me on social media and the dot com where I post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and so much more. I've got another Queen Trail legend that I'm going to put up this coming week. And I've got some really great in the company of friends talks coming up that I'm super excited about and really looking forward to sharing with you. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. And until next time. Can you hear those fireworks still going? I'm getting interrupted while I'm trying to talk to you guys. I'm, I'm so distracted. Um, until next time, I wish you passion, grace, elegance, and beauty. Beauty.